Hey there. Thanks for tuning in to Powerful Perspectives, a podcast documenting a group of high school students' journey to discovering true authority in a world of competing voices. My name is Amber DeLugash, and I teach a dual credit composition course in Bolivar, Missouri. Last semester, my students wrestled with the coursework through the lens of an essential question. What does it mean to be an American? At one point, a student reflected that stories create connection, and connection creates understanding. Therefore, we decided that in order for us to walk away from the semester with a greater understanding of the question, we had to listen to the experiences and insight of others outside of our limited vantage points. So we hosted a variety of people with different perspectives, and we published our dialogue on a separate podcast called The American Experience. This semester, we're striving to answer the question, what is power? If we learned one thing from last semester, it was that there is great power in listening to understand. So we decided it was crucial to call in experts once again and publish our conversations. As you listen, keep in mind that each discussion is organic and unscripted. Students are gathering around the table, some figurative and some literal, to hear from our guests. You'll receive the full school experience, complete with bells, announcements, and tardiness. Thanks for stepping into our world as we try to step into the worlds of others. Here's another episode of Powerful Perspectives. Today we had the honor of sharing the table with Kurt Caddy, the campus pastor at Southwest Baptist University here in Bolivar. In recent years, Kurt has developed a passion for the Lakota people in South Dakota. In Comp 2, we recently read the short story, This is What It Means to Say Phoenix, Arizona, by Native American author Sherman Alexie. Doing our best to read the story through appropriate literary lenses, we researched reservations and Native American culture. Realizing a collective ignorance but a desire to know more, we called upon Kurt for experiential insight. It is safe to say that each of us left this dialogue with heavy hearts. My name's Kurt. Last name's Caddy. Golfer's best friend. (laughs) Or Cadillac or any any of a thousand things that I can go by, I suppose. I'm the campus pastor at SBU. I've been there for 21 years. I started when I was 12. So, not quite 12. Um, But anyway, um, and that affords me the opportunity to travel the world. So I've been all over the world, uh, probably 12, 13 different countries, travel all the time with students. And but the last um, nine years, I've traveled almost exclusively to South Dakota. I can go anywhere in the world I want to go, but some, somehow I always end up back there. Okay, and we can talk about um, life on the res today. I'm um, not an expert, but have a lot of experience with Native American cultures, and primarily, almost well, not exclusively, but primarily among the Lakota people that you're probably familiar with from history, so you would know Sitting Bull. Like Sitting Bull was a famous Lakota chief. Um, crazy Horse, right? These are names that, if people talk about Native Americans, they're like, can you name three of Native Americans? And most so likely they're going to name, most of them will be Lakota people. There's a really good reason for that, because the history books are filled with it, because the Lakota people were tangled up in the um, westward expansion. They were the last Native American groups to uh, surrender as it were. Um, that's probably a pretty loose term. Okay, um, So we can talk about some of that history because I think the history of the, of the Native American people and most Native American peoples from coast to coast identify with the struggle of the Lakota people. Um, and so we have some history right here. Right here in Bolivar, you know, there used to be Native peoples that lived here in Bolivar. Okay, most people don't think about it, right? But somebody moved out so that you can, I can be here. Actually, the, the opening line in, in SBU's history, right, 150-something years old, 1878, the opening line of SBU's history is, Southwest Baptist College was founded and started in Indian Territory. Wait a minute, I thought it was Indian Territory, so why are we starting a school inside of Indian Territory if territory is set aside for Native Americans to live in? It's odd, isn't it? It's just an odd history, and we just kind of say it and nobody thinks anything about it, right? So, so there's lots of stuff that happens, right? And so, um, but that's my experience. Um, been on three of the seven reservations in South Dakota. I've uh, been in some of the poorest places in America because... 
um, those three reservations, Pine Ridge, um, Cheyenne River, and Rosebud, always duke it out for the top place and being the poorest places in America. <clears throat> so it's an incredibly difficult place to live. So kind of with that background, we can go history, we can go um, experience on the res, we can, we can talk about anything you want to talk about. So, um, and, I'll, and I will give you my, my honest, and I will tell you when it's my opinion and I'll tell you when it's sort of facts so you know the difference, right? It's, I want to be honest with you, like, hey, this is what I think as opposed to this is a fact. So, all right, now it's your turn to <coughs> ask questions. What do you want to know about? <laughs> uh, so you said you've been to three different territories? Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, of those three you went to, were they all very impoverished, or were, the, were any of them like a middle class-ish or above? Yeah, there is, there is no middle class among okay. Americans in Lakota country anyway. Okay. And that was going to be my second question. <laughs> yeah, there, there's poor, really poor, and extremely poor. Okay. Those are the classifications, right? There, isn't, there really isn't any, um, there's not any way to acquire income because they have no land rights, right? Everything that you all do, everything that your parents have done, um, is conditioned on the fact that somebody in your family somewhere, somewhere historically, somehow owns land. Okay, That's how we do things now. If you want to start a business when you get out of high school, you're going to have to put up some collateral. Well, what do you have? What kind of property do you have that's going to make me loan you $750,000? Why would I possibly do that? Well, you say, well, my grandpa has a farm worth $150,000. Let's just say whatever it is, you know. But we see we have land rights and we have ways to borrow money against property. But when you don't have property, then you can't acquire wealth. If you can't acquire wealth over a long extended period of time, then you create a systemic poverty. Okay, so that's one issue. Okay, so there's just poor people. Now the other issue, particularly on Pine Ridge Reservation, which is the poorest of the poor. Um, is that um, the unemployment rate is anywhere from 85 to 95 percent. Yeah. Do you know So that nearly everybody that you look at is without work. And there isn't like work to do. There isn't, nobody goes to the res and says, hey, let's start a factory here. There isn't any of that. Matter of fact, in Pine Ridge Reservation, which is the size of Connecticut, the state of Connecticut, that's big, big. <laughs> There's not a bank on the entire reservation. Can you imagine? How many banks do we have in Bolivar? Too many. Too, exactly. <laughs> Every time you turn around, you build a bank. You know why? Because there's wealth here. Whether you experience it or not, there's wealth here. Okay, so we have to have some place to put all this money and manage it, right? And move it around, right? That's, that's how it goes. Can you imagine that? A, a town of 70,000 people, because 70,000 people live on Pine Ridge Reservation, right? Size of Connecticut and not a bank. 70,000 people spread out over the size of Connecticut and there's one grocery store. Okay, do you see what did you see? You can almost see kind of what's happening here. And so the few people that have jobs, right, um, are usually in um, education. Um, some students, and I'll talk about that in a minute, um, will go out and get a college degree, come back to the res and teach. Okay, that happens. Nursing, healthcare, those are like the two big things, right? About 85% of all the education teachers, administrators, coaches, nurses, doctors, so on and so forth, are about 85 to 90% of them come from outside the res. Can you guess why they're, why they're there? <coughs> Because you guys are going to be getting this information. You're going to be getting some scholarships. Like, if you take this scholarship for four years of school, then you give two years of your life to go to a reservation and teach, we'll, we'll forgive your debt. So most of the people that are teaching in the school are there to fulfill the debt from their college. And the same thing with nurses and doctors. They got loans and they're paying it back. So the turnover rate in education and these kind of things is 
amazing. 70% of the teachers turn over in the school every year. So you understand that. They don't. They may not get that, right? But you get that. That's a tremendous amount of turnover. first-year teacher is hard. So if you're not a first-year teacher, so you have 7% yeah. every year. Dropout rate, 70%. Of students? Of students. Yeah, I know, right? And you're like, why is that? Because everybody, I mean, they're taught the same things you are. Education is the road. Education is the road. They're like, to do what? To do what? To come back here and do what? There's nothing to do. Do you think there's a way that they can overcome that to, like, break the cycle? That's a fantastic question. And I've spent the last 10 years <laughs> trying to figure out anything. Right? Because we know, we know it's going to be education, we know it's going to be job development, we, I mean, all kinds of things, that economic things need to happen. The problem is, is that everywhere you turn, there's a roadblock that sort of prohibits it. I'll give you an example. So I have a young man come to me. He's probably 25, grew up on a farm, and he has this fantastic idea. He wants to rent some land and start a buffalo herd. As a Lakota person, you know, they're all about the buffalo. And I could talk about that. It's another whole discussion. But, you know, so it makes sense, right? Culture is like, I'm going to go back and do this buffalo thing, and we'll develop products from that, and so on and so forth. So, man, that is a fantastic idea. How can I help you? He goes, well, can you help me figure out where I could get some land? Okay. Okay, that's reasonable. So I start doing the research, like, Land for real. <laughs> what am I? Craigslist, you know, whatever. I'm looking for something. And then I find out that 95% of the land that is available for agricultural use is leased out to white farmers, mostly from Nebraska, which borders South Dakota. On 100 year leases, for about 10% of the value of the land. So let's just make the math easy, right? If it's $1,000 an acre is what it's worth, these farmers come to the res, rent thousands of acres for $100 an acre, for 100 years. That's cheap business. If anybody's in the cattle business, that's cheap business. You want to keep that going, right? Well, who manages that land? Well, the Bureau of Indian Affairs, that's the government. So this young man, there's no, there's, no, there's no land available for him to do what he wants to do. And that's just one example, right? And it's over and over and over and over again. So you guys are talking about power? Power? There's somebody's, somebody's got some power, right? And you think, well, maybe we should petition the government. So I decided to do this. So I called my congressman, who does not want to speak to me. He wants me to vote for him. He doesn't want to talk to me. I wonder why. Because <laughs> I say, well, why don't we talk about what other, what other group of people in our country has a bureau that manages their affairs? Can you imagine? Right? Can you imagine any other group? <laughs> the Bureau of, you know... American Englishman. This is what I hear. Just wanted to mention the forecast for tomorrow does look kind of iffy as far as some possible snowfall. I just wanted to let everybody know if we do not have school tomorrow, we will still be off on Monday. So you're going to be off on Monday regardless. I'll be gone regardless. So we don't have school tomorrow? If we don't, we still have all right now that the weather has been taken care of okay so I think you get the idea yeah okay so there is no no one saves any money everyone on the reservation I shouldn't say everyone, 95% of people are on complete and absolute total government dependency. That's by treaty. 
right now we're talking about 1867. Okay, so the government says, oh, well, we've taken your land. We really feel bad about, we really feel bad about this. So we're going to provide for you housing. We're going to provide food allowance. And if, if you watch old movies, you see this. They get ration tickets. They go in and punch their card, and they get blankets, and they get, all, you know, the, the, the rations that they need. Now, none of this is considered to be extremely good for them health-wise, right? This is just government commodities. It's like whatever we have left over, we just send to the res and you guys eat it. Just a side note, just because it's fun. Native Americans for thousands of years were a um, nomadic people, at least the Lakota people were nomadic. They chased the buffalo around, hunted them, and primarily their diet was high protein, low carb, low fat, right? That's how they lived. And if you look at all these old pictures of Native American men, particularly, there's some stellar human beings. Like physically, they are like <clears throat> strong, vibrant, you know, all that. And over, over a 120-year period of time, their diet is completely switched over. Their genetics and their complete um, physical makeup has changed. You will rarely find a Lakota man that looks like a Lakota man did 100 years ago. Why? Because the government, when they gave commodities, what was it then? High carbohydrate, high fat. And when that's all there is, you change. So now it's lots of obesity. Probably 50% of all the adults have diabetes. Right? Combine that with an 80% alcoholism rate. I know, you guys are getting an education. See, this is how, this is 700 miles from where you live. This isn't across the oceans, this is right here. So, um, so that's just a little interesting fact that everything has kind of shifted over. Uh, so, here's a question, Amber and I were discussing it, that you guys want to know about. Well, if it's so terrible, why don't you just leave? <laughs> Right? It's an obvious question everybody asks. Cause, I mean, I get asked it by students like, man, Kurt, you talk about this like, I'm not even sure I want to go on this mission trip anymore. It's so terrible, you know, so. But it's not easy to leave situations You like don't have that. the education to do anything. Nor do you have okay. the means to provide for yourself should you leave. You can't ask that question. You can't yeah, well, it gets asked all the time. That you yeah. aren't necessarily, like, bred to be successful. Exactly. Yeah, so you're picking up on some of, you've, you're already connecting the dots to what I've said. Lack of education, lack of economic development. And then you just talk about the harshness of home life. Okay, everything is sort of stacked up not to be successful, right? And success has such a low threshold, like what they would consider to be successful, you all would think that is not a successful life. I could get into that, but but here's some other reasons. There's some cultural reasons why leaving is difficult to do. Not impossible. Some do, some do. Um, <clears throat> culturally, for example, I'll, I'll just kind of paint you a picture. In this, I'm thinking of a person in my mind who um, graduated from high school. All right, so they're already 20% in the minority. Okay. Success. They okay, decided they're going to go to college and actually get a degree from Creighton University. That's a that's a big name school because most Native Americans can attend any university they want to free. Yeah. I know, right? Yeah. And you're just like, wait a minute, why do you not? Right? Because futility begins to set in. Like, what is the point of this? Because I've seen people leave and they just end up back here and now they're just an educated poor person. <laughs> What's the point of that? I just skip that step. Okay, but here's what happens, okay, a significant number of time, and this is cultural, right? This really has nothing to do with systemic governments or anything like that. This is just the way they live life. So, um, Native Americans are deeply, deeply, deeply committed to family, okay? Their family connections are incredibly tied to land. Don't do the whole land ownership thing, can't own land. Matter of fact, when the treaties were being set up, you have a group of individuals that are nomadic. They don't even know what land is to own it. 
And so you have all these Europeans coming in going, well, we'll, we'll put you over here. We're going to give you this section of land and you stay here. And they're like, this is, this is not even computing. Like in their cultural understanding, all of this territory is there. They don't care about owning this section and managing this little section and putting a farm here and then 40 acres over here, or, you know, like we do, put it in little tracks. They don't do that. They're like, what we care about is the resources that this land provides. And when you're nomadic, you follow the resources. And so the land is just a vehicle to, to hold the resources. And now suddenly it's being seen as the end all thing. And so when you're making negotiations like that, they're culturally not even understanding what's that like. They're like, can we own the mother? You've heard these phrases. They really thought that the earth was the mother. They're like, how do you chop up your mother and own pieces of her? Like this is just, things aren't computing and yet they're done and they sign and the next thing you know, things are the way they are. So let's just say this person graduates from Creighton University. They get a decent job, right? And um, they're working, and everyone knows they're working. Everyone knows who's working. And suddenly, Grandma needs eyeglasses. Well, who do you think they call? They call the person who's working. Uh, Grandma needs new glasses. Grandpa needs medicine. Susan needs a surgery. Okay, and all of a sudden, these people like they are obligated, culturally and family-wise, to say, "Sure, I'll give what I have." I'll take care of that. I'll take care of grandma. I'll take care. Suddenly now they're taking care of an extended group of people. We're not talking about mom and dad and brothers and sisters. Okay, we're talking about cousins, any, anybody that has any connectedness to them at all. Okay, and suddenly the next thing you know, they're overextended. They can't make their rent. Right? Well, what happens if you don't consistently make your rent? Well, you get evicted. Now you're living out of your car trying to keep your job. Next thing you know, you lose your job. What do you do when you lose your job and you're evicted? What do you do? You go home. And this happens, I've heard this story many, many, many times, okay? So success leads to responsibility, and there's not enough success and tremendous needs back home. And so the few successful people out here, we would say, get exploited, right? And so they can't maintain what they do, and so they end up coming home, you know? And these are the ones that are usually working the, the few jobs that are around because they're educated. They're incredibly overeducated for the jobs that they're having, but that's kind of how it works. Um, so that's that's why many of them don't leave because it's just it's it's very difficult to leave. Plus, they just don't, as you guys were already alluding to, they just don't have the means to do so. Like, where are they going to go? Like, well, I'll just move. Like, I mean, I could, in theory, just decide next month I'm going to do something else. I'm going to move my family and go somewhere, and I could probably piecemeal a plan together and do it. Okay, but most people they don't even have the enough resources to even begin to think that that's possible. Okay, so something else. I have. I have, a, I have a family member who actually owns like Indian land for farming and stuff like that. Um, so that part kind of connected to me a little bit because um, I had never realized that or like realized that's how that happened, I guess. Um, but is there any way you think that like farmers or people can own that land and then in a way turn it back to help like Native Americans? Like could that possibly be a way? to help them, like employing uh, people on reservations? Like, or is that, or is that something no, that wouldn't? No, sure, it, it can happen. Okay. It doesn't really happen, but no. it could. Yeah. Um, we haven't even talked about the implicit racism yeah. that's there on both sides. I mean, both sides hate each other. I mean, it's not like, it's just, you know, white people hate Indians, it's Indians. I mean, everybody's like, it's, it's an incredibly racist area, right? So, um, so there's a lot of distrust. So your average young person who's approached by a Nebraska farmer, hey, would you like to come and work my land? Mm -hmm. Going to be just a tad bit leery of like, what's this all about, right? Doesn't mean his heart's not good. Doesn't mean it's not maybe even a great plan. But he's going to be, she's going to be pretty skeptical because their dealings have been almost always end in disaster. 
financial and otherwise. Because my, my, it's one of my grandpas who owns land there, and he, uh, we went over to his house for like Thanksgiving or Christmas one year, and he said, um, because most of the people that live around him live, or are Native Americans, and he says that just don't talk to them necessarily, but don't like ignore them or like be disrespectful because then that can cause issues. Yeah. Because he said a lot of them may not like you, but he's him personally. He he knows a couple people there that he's acquainted with, I guess. But he said there is some tension, strong tension in some places. But, yeah, um, yeah, it's yeah, that's interesting because most people don't even have a viewpoint that you do. Cause mm-hmm. So you're seeing it from a you know a perspective that most people don't have. Because yeah. I've heard so, about it, but I never knew like severity of it, like how severe it was. Yeah, it's it's a rough place. I mean, it is every every social ill that we have as a country is multiplied numerous times on the reservation. Everything from health care to, well see they have government provided health care. Mm-hmm. Right? This is a big topic. Right? <laughs> Everybody wants to, government really, I'll tell you what, my experience of watching government health not interested. You'd be better off to have no health care than to have government. Because what happens on the res is in August all the money's gone. There's no money. There's no money in the healthcare system in August. So August, September, October, November, you know, there's four or five months, I don't know. <laughs> My math's not real good this morning. Several months where people go and they're like, well, you know, Jim, you need a surgery, but you'll have to wait until January, along with about 30 other people that are waiting to have the same kind of surgery done. So what do they do? I mean, I know, I've known a man that lives in, in, in Pine Ridge that's needed a hip replacement for six years. He's in agony, needs a hip replacement. That's, that's a, when you need one of those, you're in bad shape, right? Can't really walk around. So what does he do? He drinks alcohol all day long to numb, he self-medicates. They see, he said, well, yeah, they keep putting me on the list, but then I get like three, four people from the list and then the money's gone. I have to wait, get start all over. He doesn't get bumped up to the list. Now, how, who makes the list? I don't have the foggiest idea. But for six years, he's waited to get a hip replacement. <laughs> right. So, the, so, the, and see, that's that's what you run into. Right? Um, housing is provided, food is provided, you know, all this kind of thing. So there's, there's, there. I asked one young lady one time. She was very, um, very um, engaging personality, and I just was talking to her, and I said, "You got a plan for life? Like, what do you want to do? Like, this is like when you ask a fourteen-year-old." Like, what do you want to do with life, man? You know, what do you want to be when you grow up? It's a great question, I think. Except I've learned not to ask it on the rest because you get a really honest answers, and they're like, oh, yeah, I've got a plan. So, like, when I'm 17, I'm going to have a baby, and then I'm going to have another one when I'm 20, and then I'll have another one when I'm 22, and I'll have three babies, and my grandma can take care of them while I go and party and do what I want to do. Because when you have three babies on the rest, you can make a living. Hello? That's what I was talking about earlier. That's what she's considering to be a plan and successful. About 80% of the children on the res are raised by their grandparents. Um, back to the whole government dependency, though. Do you think, and I, I, this is aimed to be like a political question, but do you think uh, the dependency on government funding for like food and everything has maybe affected their culture to take away their like their striving to become financially independent when they're handed stuff? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. There's no question about it. At one point, because all of you remember this when you were in third grade, right? And you studied social studies, and you studied Native Americans, and they talk about the buffalo. They'd say, "Oh, the Native American," and they show the picture of the buffalo and all the stuff they get from the buffalo, right? <laughs> their food. Their clothing, their shelter, everything comes from this one animal. Like these are the most sufficient people on the planet, self-sustaining people on the planet. Like you can you can do this research. I mean, at one point when they were roaming the plains, man, they had they had a vibrant culture, all built around this one thing, and they resourced everything, right? So they're very sustainable, self-sufficient people. 
probably the most self-sufficient Native American tribe that there's been. And now you look and they're the most dependent people in our society. So in less than 100 years, you go from being very incredibly culturally sustainable to being absolutely dependent. Yes, that does something to you, right? And we have things like, I have a young guy that I know, he calls me a couple weeks ago, he says, I got a job. Oh, fantastic, glad you got a job. Where'd you get a job? He tells me where he gets a job. He says, Rapid City, I have to drive like two hours away. He said, but it's pretty good pay and blah, 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 blah. And then he calls me back up. He says, a couple weeks later, he says, I don't think it's going to work out. I said, why is that? He said, because I just got my check from my bill from the government for my housing, and my housing went up. I said, your housing went up? He goes, yeah, when you get a job around here, the government jacks up your housing. Now, in what world does that make sense? So are if you, you go to work, if, huh? are you even making a profit anymore from your job? No, or? and that's why he quits. Because it's easier to stay home and drink with your buddies than to go to work because the money that you make, and by the time you count up all the gas and time away, and then they up your housing, it's like it's not worth it. So <laughs> I, this is the stuff I'm talking about. It makes you just scratch your head and go, why would we discourage people from working. So do you think it's more of a change on our end that needs to happen than a cultural change on their end? It is, it is both. Okay. okay, it is both. Mm -hmm. Typically what's done is to assist them and anything that we do tends to be more of the handout variety thing, <laughs> which is essential to some degree. I mean, I do it. I don't like doing it. Right, but it's essential because the culture's in such trouble. This people group is in such trouble that to not provide sub supplemental food and clothing and you know things that are, you know people gather to donate to give away. I'm not sure what would happen to them. But at the same time, you realize that as long as those kind of resources are there, they don't really have to do the other. But then when you start thinking about, well, is there anything other to do? Because at least in our culture, right here in Bolivar, you could say, well, gosh, I am tired of living this way, and I'm going to go get a job. <laughs> I mean, you could do that, but they're like, once they make up their mind to do that, it's like there's not even a job to have. And if you happen to go get one, and then this other stuff happens to you. So yeah, there needs to be some strong um, things thought about that, over the, that are from the government side of things to come together and go, wow, why are we punishing people? Still, I mean, and I, I have a very, very difficult time because I'm there on a pretty regular basis going, it's hard to believe that this is sort of like accidental, like this, isn't, this is happening because, gosh, no one knows it's going on. It's like, you know, there's just, the government's a massive thing. This is one of those things that's kind of fallen through the cracks. It's just that it always seems to be Native Americans. They always seem to be falling through the same crack over and over again that it's hard for me to go, this almost seems like purposeful. And then you get into weird stuff. That now I know I'm crossing, this is where I start crossing lines and going, why would you do that? You know, and you know, back in the 1800s, historically it was, there was a way, they, they were set out to absolutely destroy the Native American culture. And militarily, we're about, 4,000 people away from doing so. Except those 4,000 people scratched out a living and are still here today. And I'm not talking about the Cherokee, and you know, I'm talking about primarily what I'm, what I'm doing. Because there's no casinos in South Dakota. Like, who drives to South Dakota to go to a casino? And when you have that, that's not the utopian thing you think it is either. That usually brings in organized crime, prostitution, lots of other now you got more serious problems. Um, Have you seen any, like in your, obviously this has become a passion of yours. <laughs> um, so I, I try would, to hide it. But. <laughs> um, I would assume you're following news and current events. So have you seen any shift 
over the past years of being involved and really I, educated on this? I or? think there was a there was some really positive things that came out from the water crisis that happened. You remember the the Keystone Pipeline kind of thing and. A lot of folks were like engaging with that, at least from a distance and social media wise. But what I saw that came out of it that was the most encouraging part of it was that Native Americans um, collectively, there are about 700 tribes in the United States. And that, see, we don't, we only think of this, you know, a few, but there's like a small, you know, people that are gathered all around um, that they began to sort of bond themselves together over this particular crisis. So even though it was happening sort of in the, in the, in the on Lakota territory um, and Standing Rock Reservation, which is another reservation I have not been to, um, I saw I saw different indigenous groups, First Americans, Native Americans, you know, women, coming together to support that cause. And that was encouraging because normally everything is very isolated even among themselves, they're really very, very afraid to even connect together. And so that's one of the reasons they don't have any political powers because what happens sort of in the Oklahoma group, see like Oklahoma, there's a lot of poverty, there's some reservations there, but they have the big casino thing and they've got big money going. I mean, as a culture, they're kind of flourishing, right? They're, they've made a way to figure it out. And other groups tend to get really jealous of this sort of thing and jealousy among Native Americans is a huge spiritual issue. I mean, I can talk about that, but that's, there's also that. So to see them sort of congregate to this one place and sort of say, hey, we'll lend our voice to this and, and so on and so forth was, was encouraging. Um, government's not interested. I mean, I, you know, my congressperson, they were like, yeah, you know, finally I got to meet with one of them. I had to go to Kansas City to meet with one that would meet with me. and. And then it was just like, yeah, well, I'm going to talk to some of my staffers about this, and, and nothing, nothing ever happens. This is not interesting, and you know why? Because there's no, they have no power. You guys are talking about it. They have. Who cares if you get the Native American vote? Do you think there's a presidential candidate that cares about that? <laughs> no, because it's not. You're going to be jet setting all. You'll be flying over, <laughs> talking about poor people everywhere, right? They're gonna land there. Doesn't matter. It simply doesn't matter. They're invisible people. Okay. And when you're invisible politically, then you really are invisible. You know, because whether we like it or not, that's the means by which change happens is politics. And people make policies and changes, but when you don't, when there's not enough payoff for the politician to pay pay attention. There's simply there's simply no reason to do it, you know. And sheer compassion for human beings isn't really enough, apparently. <laughs> and that's why I do what I do. It's like I'm trying to come in and make a difference, you know. But you know, it's it's a hard thing to do. So. Do you have any ideas on how to attack the poverty issue in reservations? Maybe maybe on a micro level, not necessarily a macro. Level. <coughs> Well, I mean, again, you're you are talking about microeconomics, mm -hmm. um, small businesses, but again, it's like I, <laughs> I don't mean to be the naysayer here, but mm -hmm. like I met a lady named Norma Blacksmith, and Norma's an amazing lady, and she's a quilter, right? So she makes quilts, and star quilts there are like a big thing, right? Big, big thing. It's a way to honor people, so they make these star quilts and for all kinds of occasions. So she was going to set up a little quilt shop and do all this kind of thing. And she got this kind of a loan, and she's starting to do her thing, except that nobody has any money to buy the quilts. So you're, you're back to an economic system where it's like, like I know guys that are like extremely gifted graphic designers that say, I'm going to start a t-shirt shop. And they get a little bitty garage thing, and they got the little self-pressed, you know, they're doing the creator design thing with just manual stuff. And except for maybe the hospital and the school, nobody buys T-shirts. So eventually they just get tired of fighting it, and it goes out of business, you know. And so it's, there's, a, there's a way, there has to be a way to engage 
people outside in sort of the internet. But then again, I go to the reservation and there's no internet. You guys get upset when the wind stream goes down. <laughs> First world problems. Right? For, I, mean, I hear it all the time. Wind stream. Yeah, well, go to South Dakota and live on the res. You get no internet. Be lucky if you have to climb to the top of a hill in your pickup truck to go to where they call the phone booth so you can get a cell signal. Do you see what's happening? It's like the resources that we've come to sort of like instantly say, well, this is an answer, this isn't it. They're just simply not there. And so you're talking about massive amounts of infrastructure. Um, like I actually called one company in Kansas City because they just made a big announcement that they were, they were looking for bids to do a call center and their top four selections were all in India. It's going to provide some people in India some fantastic jobs, I guess. But I said, I call them up and say, how about considering taking your call center to Native Americans? You know, those people we call Indians, <laughs> misnamed, but nonetheless. Well, the workforce, they said, is not dependable. 70% unemployment, right? Or, you know, they're not used to working, so. We would rather take our chances with people overseas in a completely different cultural context, language barrier, than to go and train a workforce that would be right here in the U.S. And you know what's crazy about that is? They were right. That's terrible. So why is it that, you know, we can't train a workforce or, okay? Um, no industry. I remember when one, one of the little towns got a subway. Well, it was somebody that came in that had money that started a franchise there, and about four or five people worked there from the little town. But they were super excited, like, we got a subway. We got a subway, like, <laughs> like yeah. And I mean, it was like, it was like we had arrived, right? And it wasn't even like some native person that started it. You know, so, I don't know, I, I, it's, uh, there's certainly an imbalance of power. Um, we may now, I think recently from Illinois, a woman was um, elected as maybe the first Native American congressperson. One. So, and I'm not even sure about that. I'd have to check my, but it seems like I read about that. But um, So it's a, it's a harsh thing. And, uh, you know, and again, it's, it's not, a, not, a, not a pleasant thing to talk about and necessarily. I, it's a hard thing because it just ought not be this way. Um, and I have been back multiple times to where I'm, I'm considered to be sort of a, a friend. <laughs> and, but... Uh, you know, they're very skeptical and they hurt people, you know, and that's the human thing. We can talk about politics all day long and you can talk about systems and you can talk about power, but in the end you're sitting there in somebody's house and the floors are falling through and the skirting on the trailer's all gone and it's a trailer that came from um, uh, Katrina. Remember Katrina? The government sent all those trailers for those folks to live in, and then when they got all messed up, what did they do? They sent them to the res. They're condemned in, in Louisiana, and parked on the res. And so you're sitting there talking and trying to scrape together a little bit of food, and, you know, and then they give you, like, they come out and they'll say, uh, would you eat with us? Yeah, I would love to sit down and eat with you. And so they sit down to meal and they, they bring out the hamburger patty and I get a hamburger patty and nobody else gets one. That's the kind of people they are. Generous, honoring. They wouldn't think for a second not to honor me that way. You know, so... Um, 
but a beautiful people. And we can, you know, come back sometime and talk about the amazing artists I've met and um, just the beauty of their culture and the colors and the vibrancy and beads and history. And there's some beauty there. And it's, I always like to tell our students when we go, I said, it's the most beautiful broken place you'll ever be in. And I know we don't often put those things together, right? We don't put beauty and brokenness together, but um, they, they seem to flourish in that place and so, so close together. Um, and so, uh, yeah, what other questions you guys might have? Bell's going to ring in about two minutes to dismiss them. So if you have any burning questions, ask them. But it could also be a good place to end, too. Well, you're thinking. <laughs> Some of you are upset. It's okay. It's all right. You know? Some of you would just be like, eh, it's kind of a, there's not much to be done, so let's just, well, you know, just go and be gone. I mean, I get that. I just don't understand why we've turned a blind eye to this for so long. That's very frustrating. Yeah, it is. You're feeling it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, all, all of you are. It's like, how do you do this, you know, for so long? Mm -hmm. Like, it's not like it's a new thing. It's been going on, you know, for a long time. Mm -hmm. Complete ignorance in our generation, I feel like, too. Because, not that it's our fault that we didn't know, but, I mean, no one's ever talked to us about this before. Because so. mm -hmm. in school, they usually just teach you about Native American history. They don't teach you about now. Yeah, and we always teach it from mm -hmm. the white person perspective, yeah. right? Because <laughs> the victor gets to write the history. So a um, couple things I would encourage you to do if you're interested. I mean, if you want to know some more history is there's HBO did a film called Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee. It's based on Dee Brown's book from the 1970s called Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee, which is a history of Native Americans from a Native American perspective. And it goes through like all the treaties and how they've been broken and you know all this kind of stuff and the book ends with obviously the massacre that happened at Wounded Knee and you really can't understand the the plight of Native Americans without understanding that focal point okay you really you cannot um, and not just from Lakota history but from just because I'll go to the massacre site where the 350 people are buried in a mass grave and they have a little I'd say memorial is more like a barbed wire fence around it, and you can go there, and I take our students there, and uh, I'll, I'll meet Native Americans from all over the world, literally, like Aboriginal people from Australia, because it's become sort of the focal point for all um, indigenous peoples. And by the way, just this is not an American problem, right? All indigenous peoples, and by indigenous, I mean people who are first there, when colonization happened, these people came in with all these power and weapons, and they just, whoever was in the way, got them out. And Canada is just as bad. Australia has a terrible, their policy with Aboriginal people was to breed it out of them. They had, and we're in high school, I'm sure we can figure talk about this. They had breeding farms where their idea was if we take a full blooded Aboriginal person and breed them with a full-blooded Australian person, that child is half uh, so far. Take that half and breed it with another full and you have a quarter. Take that quarter, breed it with a full and you have an eighth. They were doing this legally till 1970. Okay, so the world has not been kind to indigenous peoples. <laughs> So I don't, that's not to mean that what we did to ours, but we're, it's not exclusive to it. Russians, Russian was the same way. The multi people were forced to go live in the mountains because when that happened, they were just, there wasn't anywhere for them to go. Okay, so it's, it's not something that's unique. It was unique to all indigenous peoples because of colonization. Wherever it happens, wherever you see people colonized, like look at what happened in South Africa, right? There you go. There's an example of group comes in, everybody's got to go, and now we got to figure out how to live together, and it's just it's never been a good thing. I mean, you have power of people coming in and wanting more, take with you know, all of that. So, so yeah.
Yeah, and, and, and I, no, I, no, I feel like that's that's the horrible nature of what we do, what I'm doing, is I get to come and drop this bomb. But there's other beautiful things, too. And, I, and maybe sometime we can come back and... Well, and surely people appreciate and respect you for that, <laughs> for right. educating I, us all. Yeah, but it's just, it's, just a, it's just a hard medicine to take. I mean, it, it really is, you know. I was I was talking to my son who lives in Chicago, so he's he sees race now after growing up in Morrisville, right, the diversity capital of the world, and uh, now he's in this multiple diversity, and you know, and he's seeing how things kind of are. And he was talking about Black Lives Matter and how he never really understood that until he got here, and you know, all of that. And he said, uh, I said, you know, there's really not been a consistent Native Lives Matter. So somebody does this kind of a thing, and then they, so they took the same number of top 10 problems, and then they put the, and they put the numbers statistically, for Native, it's like 10 to 15 times the amount of problem that's here is over here, but nobody hears about it. And again, it's all because there's no, there's no, there's no political power that that brings. So even if you take about a, a minority like, um, African Americans in our country, they have some political power, right? Because people want that vote. And so they're listened to because there's a large enough number, even as a minority, that in Hispanics, Latinos are the same way, right? So there's, there's some political advantage to listen to what they're saying. But people that have a worse situation because their numbers are so low are just like, eh, no, no big deal, who cares? And, that, and that's the futility I feel. It's like no one really, you know, at, at, at a level where it can be made a difference. Think when I talk to students, and then they're like, man, I care about this. And I always tell folks, I say, if you care about this, then care for one. Because that's what I tell my students. Let's go to the res. I'll, I'll introduce you to this culture, and I'll introduce you to people. And you invest in one person, one little kid that's 10 years old for that week and after you leave, you just say, you're my compassion kid and I'm gonna follow you and take care of you. I'm gonna invest in one because quite honestly, that's what we can do.